reading from Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my relatives and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the book of Hebrews. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray for the promised peace of your kingdom to bind firmly together our wayward humanity and the peoples of the world for sake of the reign and rule of Jesus, our King of peace, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now we started our Songs of Ascent series with Psalm 120. It's a song of penitence and dissatisfaction with the in-between moments of the journey. Then we looked at Psalm 121. It's a song of remembrance and faith in God's help along the journey. So today, Psalm 122, it's a song of arrival, it's reaching the destination of the journey. So we've, done, we've now come up to the gates of Jerusalem after so long on the road, and we're glad to have made it. But even as we've now arrived at our destination, as we prayed and trusted, repented and remembered God along the road, we have not yet arrived at our destiny. We've reached our destination. We've not yet reached our destiny. That is to be inside God's house, to offer up our thanks, and to become citizens 
of his peace. Yes, we finally arrived at the gates of Jerusalem, but there's still the journey into the heart of the city, upwards to the Temple Mount, into the courts of Yahweh, to present ourselves in our thanks to God in worship, and to enroll ourselves, apply ourselves to be citizens of his peace. In one way of putting it, we have arrived, but we have yet to arrive. We've reached the destination, we have yet to reach our destiny. In Psalm 122, we will learn a bit about what it is to get to that destiny. That is, our destiny to worship God in thanksgiving and to become citizens of his peace. To worship God with thanks, to become citizens of his peace. So I invite us now to turn to your Bibles or apps to Psalm 122. Now you'll see um, that the psalm begins with a superscription that's original to the ancient manuscripts. And this is what it says. A song of ascents of David. Of David. It attributes the psalm to King David. Now, if you know enough of your Bible, you would have caught how out of sync that is in terms of timeline, right? Because there was, there was no house of God. There was no temple during David's time. See, in the book of Chronicles, it recounts that God did not permit David to build the temple because his hands were drenched with the blood of warfare. So instead, his son and his successor, Solomon was the one to do that. So then the temple was built during the unprecedented period of peace in the United Kingdom of Israel during the fourth year of the reign of Solomon. Now, his name, Solomon, gives us a hint. It's his monarchical name bestowed to him during his coronation. See, Solomon was not his given name. His birth name was actually Jedediah, and the royal name Solomon It means peace, shlomo, which is derived from the word shalom. Solomon is the king of peace. So the temple, this is the backdrop. The temple, the house of God, was built by Israel's king of peace during his reign of peace inside the city of peace. That's what Jerusalem means. During the only period of peace in the land, during the only time when all the tribes of Israel were under one kingdom. This was the backdrop of peace. It was the backdrop of unity during which the house of God was built permanently inside Jerusalem. Now going back to the point about David writing this psalm, it's not not likely that David actually wrote this psalm, but rather that the psalm was redacted according to the Davidic psalm tradition. Because the temple, humanly speaking, the temple was David's idea. He conceived of this, but of course the book of Chronicles says that he was inspired by God's Spirit. It came to mind as, as, as though Moses on the mountain when he pictured the tabernacle. So this King David, he saw the floor plan, the furnishings, the priestly Levitical rites and services, all the gold and bronze articles. They all came to David's mind as divinely inspired, but he couldn't build it, so he handed it over to His son, Solomon, the king of peace. To all this to say, that Psalm 122, it reimagines David, as it were, of what what could have been his personal reaction if he were alive to see and to visit personally the temple and then himself being invited by his own citizens around him, by his fellow pilgrims. Let's go up to the house of God and offer up sacrifices. 
And this psalm, as you've read it, it glides along that same track of this Davidic impulse. This Davidic peculiar devotion is cultic piety to worship God in the most exuberant, in the most formalized ways, according to the designated pattern and place of worship. The psalm, as it were, revives Israel's greatest king and invites him to reap what he had sown, to see what he could not see, to be in the company of his fellow faithful citizens to fulfill their destiny in worship of God in the temple, and to be citizens of his peace. So then let's journey into the content of the psalm. In verse 1, the psalmist imagines himself as David here, and he's reunited now with a group of his fellow pilgrims, relatives, and friends. They're at now this one of the many entry gates of Jerusalem after some time apart in their traveling convoys. It's like that... um, it's like that moment at the airport, at the arrivals gate. There's lots of hugs, lots of laughter, lots of these quick catch-ups and quick stories about people's travels, what they saw, what they experienced. But of course, this is just, this is just a pit stop. right? You don't hang around too long at the airport when you've just arrived. This is just the beginning for everyone. Everyone is excited. They're glad for the next journey ahead of them. That is the trek into the city and the ascent up to the temple. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the temple. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. So as they walk through the gates, they look up and around the fortress city interior and they take in the view. In verses 3 to 5, the psalmist starts to describe Jerusalem. But notice he doesn't describe its architecture or its engineering beauty. He actually describes three things. Metaphorically, that is its unity, its piety, and its equity. Its unity, its piety, and its equity. So first he talks about unity in verse 3 to 4. The city's built up and bound firmly together. Bound firmly together. Visually, the, the city's compact with its thick fortress walls, with its gates, with its towers. But of course, the psalmist meant much more than just its physical integrity. See, the, uh, the phrase bound firmly together, that's the same verb in Hebrew that's found in the book of Exodus. When God instructed for the tent or the tabernacle of his presence to be bound together so that it's one single piece. You couple the whole thing together, this whole fabric, into one. See, the psalmist is describing Jerusalem as this tent, as this tabernacle. It's a city of refuge that gave anyone asylum. It's a prominent landmark atop a mountain for anyone in the wilderness who's looking for shelter. And it was also the center of gravity for religious and tribal unity in the land. See, whoever wanted to find out more about God, or they wanted to become a Jew, they went to Jerusalem. And in verse 4, the city was this appointed rendezvous where members of the family of Israel everywhere would reunite three times a year, where they could sit, they could feast, eat, drink, and pray together. This is to say that the city was the sun. It was the sun that not only gave light, to the surrounding nations, it was the one that kept in orbit the tribes of Israel. 
Now it's because of these three pilgrimage festivals that Jerusalem became known for, for, became known for its piety, which is the second thing the psalmist describes. See in the second half of verse 4. It was decreed for the tribes of Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Well, there are many things about what Jewish worship is, but here the psalmist focuses on one thing, one thing only, to give thanks, thanksgiving. He doesn't mention sacrifices, uh, no, no offerings, no tithes, not about forgiveness. He, he focuses on thanksgiving. See, in contrast to pagan festivals, they were occasions to indulge the senses and to hand out the bribes to the gods. See, the three Jewish pilgrimage festivals, uh, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, they were not about gaining God's favor, and they were not even about asking God for forgiveness. They were chiefly about giving thanks to God for rescuing them, for providing for them, for sheltering them in the desert. See, at the most, the most basic level, Judeo-Christian worship is creation's thank you to its creator. It's creation's thank you to God. Now even, even Christians, myself included here, we can unknowingly become pagan when we sometimes treat Sunday worship, even right now, or going to church, getting baptized, taking communion, as some kind of magic spell that that gets God to do something for us. We're to get God off our backs. We're to keep our religious conscience at bay or to keep our religious record on par or just to make the parent or a grandparent or a spouse happy. See, is the core of our Christian worship a thankful one? Is the heart of our Christian piety a grateful one? And if so, when we're grateful, is it because circumstances have been pretty good so far that we're feeling blessed by God? Or is it mainly because of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus in spite of circumstances? What does our piety look like? We offer our thanks to God in worship as a gathered and pilgrim people who are bound firmly together in Jesus. This fulfills our destiny. Now thirdly, the psalmist describes the equity of the city in verse 5. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Now of course there's only one throne and that's reserved for the king and he alone sat at the bench of the supreme court, himself being the chief justice of the land. But here we, we see a plural word here, thrones, there's a lot of them. See, there were other thrones, in fact. There were other benches, as it were. There were these superior courts and courts of appeals in Jerusalem. These were judicial offices that were delegated to princes and priests. That were, they were to hear the smaller cases. The bigger ones go to the king. See, Jerusalem was this city, cathedral, capital of Israel. It was the head fountain that gushes out justice, that gushes out equity from the foot of these thrones and benches of David. And they would spill, they were supposed to spill out and all over the land, all over the kingdom. That's what it's supposed to do. Now, it was likely during the post-exilic period here that 
pilgrims whose disputes were unsettled in the, uh, the country courts. Uh, they would escalate their cases. They would bring up their appeal to the thrones and benches in Jerusalem during pilgrimage. That, was, that made sense. That was, that was practical. You had three shots at this each year. So pilgrimage became a literal quest for justice. Pilgrimage was this wilderness journey in search for equity. When you couldn't find that at home, when you couldn't find that in the country, you held out hope that you could find it in Jerusalem. That's what Jerusalem stood for. That's where the thrones and benches are of David. You had to travel there. You had to set foot. You had to go the long way. And why? Because thrones and benches of David are set there whose foundations were said to be of justice and righteousness, the same foundation of God's throne that is in heaven. So there we have it, the unity, the piety, the equity of Jerusalem. So throughout, throughout the history of Christian symbolism, Jerusalem, the city, stood as this archetypal polis, polis being the Greek word for city. That is to say that Jerusalem, they, it represented the ideal and future of human society. At least how it was supposed to be. A people and citizens united, pious, equitable. You could add virtues to the list, but these three are the most fundamental. Unity, piety, and equity. These are basic to any human society. Without, see, without unity, a city divided against itself cannot stand Without piety, a city becomes godless. It's pretty much secular humanism. Without equity, it's obvious a city becomes wicked. But when you have all three together, a city becomes a city of peace. When you have all three together, you have a city of peace. Peace, that means total harmony, total wholeness. And throughout history, every sort of human community, as small as a two-person household, and as big and large as an empire, they all struggled to be a polis of peace, to be a society of peace, to be a city of peace. How would we rate our own city of Toronto? To these three virtues of unity, piety, and equity. Would are people saying, um, those who live in Toronto, and even those living outside the GTA, would they say that Toronto is a city of peace? A polis of peace? Would they say that? How about your own household? Is your family a polis of peace? Are your relationships a polis of peace? How about little T? Does our church live up to these three things? Unity, piety, and equity according to the Christian faith. Now, obviously, the psalmist understood that no city could always live up to these ideals. That's why we have verse 6. He implores us, his audience, to pray, to pray, to ask. We ask when we don't have, right? To pray with him for the peace of Jerusalem, for the city of peace to live up to its name. Verse 7, peace be within your walls, security within your towers. He's praying here for stability in the city's internal and external affairs. No civil unrest, no internal, international conflicts. The prayer goes on in verse 8. See, he bids this Semitic greeting 
to his family in French. Shalom Alechem. Peace be with you. That's, he's not just being polite here. He's imparting to them a blessing. See, this greeting is a literal benediction of peace. May this happen to you. May there be peace for you as individuals, for you as a person, for you as a human being. See, if there's going to be peace in the city, there needs to be the same peace in individuals. Right? The city is made out of individuals. We need peace within ourselves as well. The psalmist doesn't just end in prayer. I mean, we, that's usually what's easiest for us and convenient. I'll pray for you. That's a good thing, but maybe we could take one more step as Christians. We could pray for others. We could offer prayer, but we can do something about it as well. See, in the last verse, in verse 9, the psalmist doesn't just pray. He vows to live up to his own prayer. He prays for peace, but he wants to be a person of peace. I will seek the good of the city. I will seek your good, Jerusalem, for the sake of the house of God. See, the psalmist is motivated. Isn't, his motivation isn't just for the city per se, but it's actually for the glory of God, which resides in the temple. For which is greater, the city itself or the temple that is in it? And what makes the temple holy? Is it the grandeur of the building itself? Or the glory that is within it. To pray for peace and to live for peace as citizens of God's peace. That's to God's glory and for the good of the city. To pray for peace, to live for peace as citizens of God's peace. That's for God's glory and for the good of the city. Those are not in competition at all. We can be for good of everyone. For the good of Toronto. For the good of your home. And that's for the glory of Jesus. This too fulfills our destiny. So then Psalm 122, he, that's the vision. This is the vision of virtuous Jerusalem. The ideal polis of peace. But we know through history this was not always the case. Right? Jerusalem had racked up this record since the time of King Rehoboam. For being a city that ignored, that undermined, that persecuted the prophets of God. Numerous times Jerusalem crumbled into apostasy. When her princes and rulers, they slouched in luxury. Her priests gorged themselves with the sacrifices of the people. Their kings erected altars on every hill in contempt of the house of God. The city of peace did not live up to the ideals of this psalm but instead has continued to divide, to blaspheme, and to oppress its own citizens, as the Bible recounts. And even to this day, modern-day Jerusalem, it stands as this highly controversial symbol in the global stage of geopolitical unrest and dispute. Now in the Gospels, Jesus Christ, he ascended up to Jerusalem during that one of those pilgrimage festivals in Jerusalem. And when he saw, when he looked over, there was this vista, right? You could see the whole city from above. And he saw Jerusalem. And he did not exclaim as the psalmist did with gladness and excitement. Instead, he wept aloud with loud tears and lament. And he cried over the city. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, 
How I've longed to bind it firmly together, to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. If you even you had known only on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. It will be taken away from you. And five days later, the king of Jerusalem, Herod, and the high priest Annas and Caiaphas, they handed Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified. But then, as, as the author of Hebrews, as we've read in the second reading, the blood that the rulers, the kings of Jerusalem, as it were, spilled, they bore, it bore greater witness. It spoke a better word. And could the blood of Abel, who himself was martyred and persecuted by his own blood relative, the spilling of Jesus' blood, as it were, at the foot of Jerusalem, at the thrones and benches that were supposed to hold up justice and equity, it spilled over the land. And what happened? The blossoms and flowers of peace began to sprout. He began to, it became the sacrifice for the binding of all the human race. Binding firmly together both Jew and Gentile. Breaking down the wall of enmity, enmity between us and them. Us versus them. Us and God. Jesus Christ becomes this true and resurrected king of peace. And he's now building up. It's not just in his mind. He's literally building up a heavenly Jerusalem. He's preparing in heaven for us this new polis of peace. And it's described in Revelation as coming down. It's going to descend from above into the, all the lands of the world. We're each, right now, we're, we're invited to apply for citizenship to this new city. To partake. Participate in Christ's reign of peace. And this isn't, this isn't some far-flung reality that is yet to happen. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, is at hand. It's, a, it's nigh. It's here right now. As close as your breath is inside your heart, it's already here, right where you are, where you're seated, where you're listening, right where we live here in Toronto, inside your own home. We have already arrived, if you think about it. We are at our destination. We are inside, inside the very heart of the kingdom of God on this planet. But, but we have yet to arrive. We are already, but not yet. We have still to reach our destiny. We're in the destination. We're at the kingdom of God, but we have yet to reach that final destiny to be in worship of God and thanks to become citizens of his peace on this planet. And so we must yet travel. We're still to be on pilgrimage. We're still on pilgrimage. We're still in the wilderness. There's still the journey ahead of us, the trek to the heart of God's kingdom, this earth. People were constantly praying for a peace of cities, for the peace of homes, for the peace of neighborhoods, even that of Jerusalem today. To be citizens of Christ's peace in this world. And we're ascending up. We're, we're, we're ascending up to that new Jerusalem, being built in heaven to come down to earth when Jesus shall reappear to make all the universe into God's living space. To the end that all creation will be bound firmly together with its creator. For we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, who is our King of peace. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.